Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Julie Zhu. She's the VP of product design at Facebook and the author of a new book called The Making of a Manager, What to Do When Everyone Looks to You. I met Julie almost a year ago at the Watermark Conference for Women in Silicon Valley. This is an event where a bunch of smart, powerful, successful women come together and basically brainstorm on how to take over the world. I don't know how else to describe it. I was on stage with Julie on a panel and we were talking about managing up, basically making the people ahead of you, above you on the org chart happier. And at the beginning of our conversation, she indicated that she was writing a book and I was so excited. I said, when that book comes out, I have to have you on Let's Fix Work. We've tried to have this conversation twice. The first time we tried to record, there was a hurricane. The second time we tried to record, Julie went into labor early. And so (laughs) we don't talk about any of that on the show, but just know that we've been anxious to bring you this conversation for a while. On today's episode of Let's Fix Work, we talk about the difference between managers and leaders. We also discuss organizational trust. And finally, we tackle a topic that we've tackled before, but Julie has some pretty nuanced and specific ideas around it, and that's feedback. So if you're interested in all of those topics, or if you just want to hear me talk to someone who was Facebook's first intern, that's right, Julie Zhu was the first ever intern at Facebook in 2006, and now she's VP of product design. It's her job to make Facebook look great. Sit tight, and I'll be right back with more Julie Zhu and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Julie. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me here today. Well, it's such a joy and a treat to have you here. Not only are you just someone that I've gotten to know through the conference circuit, but you're now a newly minted author. And I'd love to talk to you today about your new book called The Making of a Manager. What do you do when everyone looks at you? So Julie, right off the bat, why did you write this book? That's a great question. So I remember being a new manager at 25 years old, my boss had talked to me about the fact that our team was expanding and said, hey, I really need someone to help manage the team with me. What do you think? And on the spot, I said yes, because I wanted to help out because it seemed like it was the start of this exciting journey. And it wasn't until a few days later that I'm sitting down having my first one-on-one with somebody who was formerly a peer of mine, now is you know my report, that I realized I really had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I bet that feeling is universal, really, for so many of us out there. Julie, there are a lot of definitions of management and you have one in the book. Why don't you tell us what your definition of management is? As I see it, the job of a manager is to get the best outcomes possible from her team, from the group of people that's working together towards a common goal. Well, that's a pretty simple definition, like really simple and clear cut. Why do you think people overcomplicate the world of management? 
I think a lot of the reason why is because we grow up with a sense of what management is supposed to be. You know, most of us, if we ever take a job, whether in high school, college, after college, you know, we're working with a supervisor or a manager. And that's often how we get the sense of, okay, here's what a manager's job is. Here's what they do. And I think we, you know, we pattern match, right? And so when I became a manager, for example, I thought of managers as kind of an authoritative figure. I thought of them as the people who made hiring and firing decisions and told me, you know, what assignments I should take on and gave me feedback on my work. And so I think we tend to see management as maybe a series of tasks or a series of responsibilities. It wasn't until many years later where I realized, well, all of these are basically means to an end, right? Managers hire, they fire, they give feedback but it's all towards a purpose. And the purpose is really trying to get a group of people to work really well together so that that group can achieve its goals. You know, Julie, in today's work culture, oftentimes uh, managers get confused with being therapists. They get confused with being coaches. And I wonder if you see that trend in the work environment or if it's just me. And if you have an opinion on why we're trying to self-actualize employees instead of getting them to work together as a group to solve a problem. You know, I have noticed that. I've noticed it in a lot of the articles that I've read about management. And the way that I see it, I go back to that definition. Managers are all about trying to help a group of people come together to achieve the goal. And you define what the goal is. You know, if you're teaching kids, it's about helping them get a great education. If you're building a product, it's about making a high quality product on time that is going to meet its goals. But I think the reason why we talk so much about that particular relationship is at the end of the day, you know, one of the biggest levers that managers have for ensuring that you know they can achieve their goals is through the people, right? Is through making sure that you have the right talent, that the people on your team can play to their strengths, that you can help coach the people to do even better and to realize their full potential. And in order to do that, you have to have a good relationship with them. You have to have a relationship that's built on trust, where they feel like you respect them for who they are. And the opposite is also true. And so to get there, oftentimes we do have to talk to each other like real human beings. You know, we have to help each other have those vulnerable conversations or kind of be real with one another. And I do believe that that is one of the ingredients that's necessary to help managers and their reports have a great relationship. Well, I love that emphasis on having a human-to-human connection. I mean, it's just important for all of us. In your book, you talk a little bit about the difference between leadership and management. And I think many of us use those words interchangeably. And I would love for your take on that. Like, What's the difference and why does it matter? The way that I see it, management is a role. And, you know, it's a job. It's a particular set of responsibilities. Again, your job is to help this group of people, that's your team, get to those great outcomes and objectives that you've defined. And like any role, you know, it can be given to you, it can be bestowed to you, it can be taken away from you. But leadership is not a role. Leadership is a quality. And leaders can be managers or they can be non-managers. Now, I certainly think that for managers to be effective, they should exhibit qualities of great leadership. Because to me, what a great leader is, is just somebody that others want to follow. It's somebody who can take initiative. It's somebody who can identify a problem and rally a group of people towards that problem to solve it. You know, leadership just means you're the kind of person that other people want to listen to and they want to follow. If you're a manager and you're not a strong leader and nobody really wants to listen to you or follow you, then that's going to be a problem because you're not going to be super effective at your job. But there's lots and lots of ways that people who are not managers can exhibit and demonstrate leadership in the workforce. So Julie, I want to know, at what point in your career did you move from manager 
to leader? And how did you know you had made the jump? It certainly was not the day that I became a manager. I still remember, you know, having those first one-on-one conversations with my peers and I could kind of sense they're sort of like, well, you know, yesterday you were one of us and now you're our boss. And so what are you going to be able to offer me again? And I remember, you know, being actually very self-conscious about that in those early days, you know, constantly doubting myself and asking, well, I don't think I'm a more skilled designer than this person. I don't think I'm more this or that. Like, how am I going to be someone that they see as a leader or or someone that you know they want to follow. And what I learned over those many years of being a manager is that the thing that I wish I had told myself back then is that it doesn't mean that I have to be better at everything or even any one particular skill than the people on my team. It just means that I have to be good at listening to people, understanding what they're great at and what they want to do, and making sure that all of the great ideas that come from all the people in my team can be surfaced and that we can tackle these things together. You know, a lot of what leadership really is, isn't as a lot of times the way we imagined it. You know, you're the person in the front, you're the leader of the pack, you're the one that everyone's looking up to because you're so great and whatnot. A lot of leadership is just being able to observe and listen and to get to know the people on your team and then ensuring that the best qualities of those people on your team are what get surfaced. And so, you know, if this person happens to be the most organized person, then they're doing a lot to help the whole team get more organized. And if this person comes up with the most brilliant out-of-the-box ideas, then you know that, that person has a forum to share those ideas and we take the best of those ideas and we do them together. And that to me is a lot of what leadership actually is. Yeah, I love that definition. I think whether you're a manager or a leader, there's always so much on your mind, especially when you're dealing with human psychology and human behavior. And in your book, you write that there are certain things that managers think of all day long. And I think you mentioned three of them. Do you remember what they are? Can you share them with our listeners? Yes. So the three things that I consider the major buckets of tools in a manager's toolkit fall into these three areas. The first is people, as we talked about before. And people is most important thinking about ensuring that you're bringing the right people onto the team. So that's, you know, oftentimes hiring, recruiting, et cetera. It's thinking about how to coach the current people on your team and ensuring that their strengths are amplified across the team. It's also doing things like performance management, you know, giving feedback, helping people adjust their behavior if it's not in the spirit of helping the team get better. I think the second bucket is all around process. And so the way I think about it, you know, if you have really, really talented people, you know, let's say you have an orchestra, you've got the right violinist, you've got the right percussion players, you still need to make sure that everyone knows how to work together and how to play music together. And that means you need to make sure that, you know, the right processes are in place, that everyone knows how to read the cues from the conductor, everyone knows where to sit, so nobody's blocking each other's views. If there's a conflict or whatnot, you know, what should people do? How do we resolve that? That's all about defining good processes. That's the how of how your talent works together. And then the third bucket is all around purpose. And that's making sure that every single one of the people in your team has the same understanding of what success looks like. And so if we're talking about an, you know, an orchestra or a symphony, it's ensuring that basically everyone has the same sheet music. 
Because if you have talented people and they know how to work together, but they don't have the same picture of what success looks like, you're still going to get conflicts. And purpose is, becomes more and more important as the organization or the team gets bigger and bigger, because at that point, you might have dozens of people, hundreds or thousands, and they all have a slightly different perspective of what we're really, really trying to do together, then they're not going to be working together as efficiently. Well, that certainly makes sense to me. I'm thinking about all of the listeners who are out there who work in small to medium-sized companies all over the world, and they would love to improve their management skills and their leadership skills, but they feel as if they're lacking training, right? There's no training at their office. And I wonder if you can speak to that and also talk a little bit about how your book might be helpful for them if they don't have access to management or leadership training. Do you even need to take those classes to be a good manager? That's a great question because I obviously do think that the more that you have access to courses, books, and so forth, you know, they're all tools to help you in your management journey. But I also think that one of the most important things that managers can do for themselves to improve is simply asking for feedback all the time. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually hard to do in practice because, you know, it's asking for feedback can sometimes feel like we're having to let our guard down and be vulnerable and open ourselves up to the possibility that maybe we're not doing everything perfectly or as good as we want to be doing them. And so that's why I think oftentimes, you know, we hesitate to ask for real honest feedback. But, you know, if you are a manager, oftentimes the fastest way for you to learn is just to let your guard down and to genuinely ask your reports, ask your peers, ask your own manager, hey, what could I be doing better? Or even if you just did something, you gave a presentation, you ran a meeting, right? Being able to pull a few people who were there in the audience and asking them, what would have made that meeting twice as good? Or what would have made that presentation twice as good? I like the framing of twice as good because it's not about judgment. It's not like, oh, hey, was that an A? Was that a C? Did I do good? Did I not do well? It's more framed as there's always ways that I can improve. And even if it is you know, a B plus or an A presentation, there's ways that it can be even better. And so I'm interested in learning what could make that even better. And I think if you just get in the habit of being able to ask for feedback every day or every time after you have a big event and you're wondering how you can improve, just having that little habit is going to give you more and more ideas and make you more aware of your blind spots such that your growth trajectory will be far faster than if you just sort of assume or if you yourself are trying to figure out how you could do better. Yeah, that is such a great piece of advice. It's so wise to create almost a mini culture of feedback in your own life. I know where you work at Facebook, feedback is part of the environment. It's part of the vibe. I think there are so many of us who have worked in work cultures where people are avoidant or they're detached. So do you have any advice for someone to be brave? I mean, obviously leaders go first. I mean, that's just a principle of leadership. But if you've got a culture that doesn't know how to give feedback or doesn't give very good feedback, How do you discern the good from the bad? What does great feedback look like in that environment? Great feedback to me is simply feedback that changes our behavior in a way that later on we're grateful for and that we believe made our lives better. So that's what great feedback is. You know, it inspires us to make a change that later we feel proud of, that we're happier that for having known that and being able to make that change. 
I think, you know, a lot of times when we think about feedback, one of the things that we often tell ourselves is like, oh, we should only give feedback if something isn't working or if, you know, something is broken or if somebody did something that was a mistake or shouldn't be done in the future. And I don't think that feedback has to be critical or negative. In fact, if you look at that definition, you know, what's feedback that someone's giving you that has inspired you to change your behavior? Oftentimes that can be positive feedback. Oftentimes it's somebody recognizing that you are really great at this thing. You know, I still remember peers and mentors of mine in the past who have told me things like, wow, Julie, you have such enthusiasm. Maybe you should think about public speaking, or maybe you should do more writing, or maybe you should do this or that. And that was hugely inspiring to me because they helped me discover something about myself that I didn't know before. And they encouraged me to do more of that thing. And so, you know, I take their advice and I would do more of that and I would feel rewarded in doing that. And so I think if an organization has trouble getting started with feedback, oftentimes the easiest way to start is just to figure out how we can recognize each other's strengths and the things that are going well and help encourage and push people to you know, do more of that or to stretch and find opportunities to make greater use of that skill. That's one of the easiest ways to get started and it can help us get into zone of constantly giving each other feedback. The second thing I was going to say around a culture of feedback is that, you know, I think we have to also get to the point where we don't see feedback as judgment. And that can be very hard because if we've grown up in a school environment and, you know, oftentimes we've equated feedback with, okay, that means it's not an A, it's a B, it's a C. You know, there's always some sort of grade or there's some sort of, you know, way to ascribe judgment to the kind of feedback that you get, right, from a test result or whatnot. But I think in the real world, feedback doesn't have to be about answering the question of, you know, did you do great? Did you not do great? If you change your mindset to just think about feedback as simply, this is the fastest way for me to learn and grow. And it doesn't matter how good I am at this thing today. It means I can always get better at it. And if I listen to the feedback and if I honestly seek it out for ways to improve instead of just a pat on the back or hearing things that's going to make myself feel better, then I know that in six months or in a year or in two years, I'm going to be so much better than at this particular thing than where I am today. And I think thinking about growth and thinking about our careers as being on an arc or on a journey versus, you know, did I make it? Did I achieve what I wanted to, I think that also helps us see feedback as a positive thing rather than a negative or uh, icky thing. Well, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about feedback is the word trust. And this is something that you've written about extensively in your book. And I wonder if you can share with us a few ways to build trust within teams so that whether it's feedback or a project or some challenging goal down the road, you can achieve those goals a little bit faster and with integrity. How do you build trust? The first thing I'll say is that I do think it is more on the manager or the leader or the person with more power in the relationship to be the one to set the bar for trust. And I think that's just worth acknowledging because in a manager report relationship, you know, things aren't equal. It's easier for you to say certain things to your report than the other way around because you hold more power your report. You know, you're the person who determines if they're going to get a promotion, if they're going to get fired. And so I think that the job of ensuring that you have a trusting relationship needs to be taken seriously and be something that the manager is all into. And now in terms of what might build trust, I think the first and most important thing is, you know, sort of asking yourself, how would I build trust in any relationship, right? With 
let's say, a friend or with a significant other or a new acquaintance that I just met. And I think it goes back to listening and being curious about the other person. So the first thing I'll do when I'm working with a new report for the first time is just to spend the first few sessions just getting to know who they are, asking questions, you know, trying to understand what do they like? What do they think they're good at? What do they want to achieve in two or three years? You know, what keeps them up at night? What kind of environment do they love working in? And what kinds of environments have they worked in the past that hasn't worked out for them? And by being curious and just asking questions to get to know that person, I think it's us demonstrating that we really do care about that person. And the more that we know about them, the more that we can also shift our style and do the things that are going to be what that person wants. I think the second way to build trust is obviously to then do the things that that person cares about. So if the person tells you that you know one of their goals is that they would like to be a manager in three years time, then as their manager, if I can look out for opportunities that will help them grow those skills, maybe next summer rolls around and I ask them, hey, you know, I remember that you said you wanted to be a manager and we have an opportunity for someone to mentor an intern and I thought about you, you know, doing things like that, that indicate that you were listening and that you do truly want to help this person reach their goals is another way to build trust. And the third thing that I think managers can do is also open up and be vulnerable ourselves. Sometimes it's really hard to expect that the other person is going to tell you their hopes and dreams and you know the mistakes that they've made and what's keeping them up at night. If you are always coming across super polished, like you're perfect and you know you don't make mistakes. Because if that's how you're coming across, that's how the person is going to think that they need to come across to you. And so as a manager, you know, I also try very hard to try and show that vulnerable side of myself. And that means, you know, admitting when I make mistakes, talking about things that I've done that haven't worked out, asking for help, admitting when I don't have the answer and that I'm going to figure it out from someone else or I'm going to, you know, rely on the team as a whole to help me come up with the answer. I think the more that leaders can be seen as real human beings who are vulnerable and are authentically themselves, the easier it is for other people to come across that way as well. Well, Julie, I love that we're wrapping up the conversation around vulnerability because I think for many people who are listening, you have the ultimate life. (laughs) So here you are, you are a manager, you're a leader at a, a phenomenal organization that many people emulate. You're a parent, you're an author, you're a speaker on the conference circuit. And I just wonder if you can speak to some of that because I would imagine that there's a push and pull, especially during your day job when the book is calling, or maybe you don't get to do some of the things you want to do with the book because you've got a full-time job. Can you talk a little bit about that tension and maybe pull back the curtain and tell people what it's like to be you living in the throes of having a job and also a successful book? You know, it it definitely wasn't a super smooth journey to writing this book. I will admit that, you know, when I first signed the contract and they asked me how long they thought it would take, I was like, well, of course, it's not going to take me that long, probably nine months. And a year and two months later, I was still frantically trying to wrap up the first draft and it was nowhere near the level of quality that I think we all wanted it to be. So there's a lot of things like that where I would say that I didn't do a great job of uh, maybe predicting how to best juggle and balance 
these different things in my life. Um, and, you know, I think we learn and I've certainly learned a lot as I went along. It's just a matter of, I think, figuring out like, well, what are my priorities and how do I want to spend this week, this month, this Saturday, this Sunday, and trying to be really clear and intentional because I hear people say things like, well, how do we have it all? How do we do X or Y? And I don't know that there is an answer to that. I think the best that I've been able to come up with is just to recognize that if you have all these things that you want to do, there's only a certain number of hours in a day and you're probably not going to be able to do them all. But what matters is that you can choose the first most important thing, the second most important thing, the third most important thing, and then be intentional about knowing that if you have this amount of time and you're choosing to do one, two, three, then don't beat yourself up if you don't get to four or five or six. Like just as long as it's intentional and as long as you're not spending more time on less important things over more important things, then come to peace with it. I love that advice. I love intentionality. It's so smart. But when people say to me, you know, Lori Rudiman, you're writing a book right now and it must be nice. I've got a full-time job and a family. I've been pointing them, Julie, to your book (laughs) as an example of someone who had a dream, has a family, has a full-time job with myriad responsibilities and still got it done. So congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thank you. It was a really rewarding journey. Not easy, but very rewarding. Well, when's book number two coming out? You know, I haven't thought that far yet. I feel very lucky to have been able to write this first book. I'm looking and, you know, exploring inspiration for the thing that it's going to make me excited enough to dedicate the next two or three years of my life to. I love that you're not like daunted from the journey and that you're still considering writing another book because this book was so helpful. It's designed well, it's easy to read, but yet packed full of really informative information. So thanks again for writing it. And thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Thank you, Lori. It's just so fun. And everybody will have Julie's information in the show notes and we'll be right back right after the break. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Julie Zhu. If you want to learn more, you can head over to laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 75 and download a key takeaway PDF. And on there, you'll get tools, tips and resources, but also feel free to go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast and check out our show notes over there. Let's Fix Work was produced by Danny Osmet of Emerald City Productions. He's got a lot of help, a lot of people behind the scenes to make me sound great, and I really appreciate it. If you like what you hear or you have any feedback to help make the show twice as good, see, I'm listening to my guests. If you want to make Let's Fix Work twice as good, hit me up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.